Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From the newsroom at Eater, I'm Amanda Klutz. And I am Daniel Janine. And this is Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. With a little help from the biggest names in the world of food and the team here at Eater, we try to understand what's happening right now in kitchens, restaurants, and dining rooms around the world. Today on the show, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a restaurant critic. We have two prominent critics coming in, one who works in the New York area and one who works on a national scale. And they are going to talk about behind the scenes, what it's really like. It's not all glamorous. The overeating. (laughs) The overeating, the grind (laughs) of filing restaurant reviews all the time. And the weight that it bears on them deciding between restaurants and writing negative reviews. From there, we're going to get into the biggest stories of the week, including the Popeye's chicken sandwich, which is... Huge, huge news. Also, how Jeff Bezos eats Cheetos and more. If you love the show, all we ask is that you share it with one friend. One friend. One friend who you think might like it. And uh, other than that, I think let's let's get into it. Whenever people hear you work at Eater, the first question you get is, Are you a critic? Are you a critic? Oh, you review restaurants? Are you a critic? Are you going to be reviewing this on Eater? Other questions I get are, do you get all your meals for free? No, I don't. Every time someone cooks something for me, they'll go, will this be on Eater? I also get, are you going to be reviewing this on Eater? That happens everywhere, especially loudly in front of restaurant staff or at a holiday dinner at a relative's house. Oh, you eat free food all the time? No. People will ask, can you get me free food? No, I can't. Need someone to go with you? I'm a great food critic. No. Then there's the frustratingly vague question, what restaurant should I go to? Yes, I'm going to review your Passover brisket on Eater. That's totally what I do for work. The vast majority of food writers are not restaurant critics. Like, Daniel, we have 80 people working here, and two of them are restaurant critics. Mm -hmm. And I think that is kind of representative of the rest of the scene. You have all these publications, and it's it's rare that they employ a full-time restaurant critic. Um, But But yet. Yet, there is an overwhelming fascination with this small corner of food writing. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times, whether it's your the guy giving you a haircut or someone you meet at a wedding or whoever it is, they assume if you say you work in food and you're writing about it that you are reviewing restaurants. So we called in two critics to actually tell us what it's like. Bon Appetit deputy editor Julia Kramer, who's been at it for 11 years and now oversees Bon Appetit's Hot 10 list coming out in a couple weeks, and Eater's own Ryan Sutton, our New York critic. And they're going to pull back the curtain on this wild world for us. After graduation, Julia joined Time Out Chicago as an intern. Then she spent five years as a city critic, hitting every single new restaurant she could and reviewing all of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In Chicago, we literally were 
exhaustive. Like, if a place opened and we knew about it, we went there. Now as an editor at Bon Appetit, her job as a national critic is vastly different. The main difference between my old job and my current job is that I wrote a lot of negative reviews. Right, right. Um, as a national critic, you're not writing any negative reviews. Yeah, we just write about things that we love. And for our annual list of the best new restaurants in America, the Hot 10, I visit, you know, hundreds of restaurants and I don't say anything about the like 175 of them that were kind of mediocre. So that's very different from when I was reviewing a timeout and I was reviewing one to two restaurants and one to two bars a week. I don't know. I'm glad to just be highlighting the good stuff at this point. That's a little different for Ryan at the local level here in New York. He publishes more reviews, but that doesn't mean he's hitting every opening just for the sake of hitting it. You know, I often like to say that Michelin is in the job of inspecting. They go to as many restaurants as they can and they give them a rating. We're not inspectors. We're storytellers. And, you know, we find interesting stories that we think can connect to people. And we like to place a restaurant within the cultural framework of the city. Ryan and his editors here at Eater collaborate on trying to figure out which restaurants they want to cover, and they try to go for restaurants that have something to say and that really have a story behind them. You know, we all sit down and say, okay, well, what, what's important these days? You know, what's doing something that's underrepresented? Uh, what's doing something that's maybe overrepresented? And we can maybe, you know, take them down if they're serving bad food. What's, you know, who's overcharging? Who's undercharging? And we just try to tell good stories within the context of, you know, what's interesting, what's a good value. Julia relies heavily on locals in the cities that she visits every year. And for her, it's all about her network. Something nice happens when you go back to the same cities year after year. You sort of build contacts in those cities who then you can trust going forward. And like word of mouth is by far the best way of getting recommendations. And I really like to eat out with people who live in that city because I find it really helpful to get their insights into how this restaurant kind of fits into the context of the city. And if they're like, well, this place is good, but you should really go to this other place that does the same food but better. Just because Ryan has a bad meal, it doesn't mean that he's going to write a review about the restaurant. The most important thing he does as a critic is find the greater context surrounding the restaurant that he's eating at. It would be imprudent for us to find a little mom-and-pop shop, uh, say, somewhere in, in Hell's Kitchen, perhaps a restaurant that's not charging a lot of money. Maybe they're serving, um, there's a lot of great Latino restaurants in Hell's Kitchen. Maybe they're serving Colombian food. And maybe they're serving the community. It's serving really nourishing food at a pretty decent price. But it's kind of inconsistent in the execution. But if it's a vital neighborhood spot that feeds people and that that serves it with love you know who is it for us to take that restaurant down you know there's this line in yeah, i could be misquoting anton ego the famous food critic from the movie ratatouille but i believe there was something to the effect of you know we thrive on negative criticism which is fun to write and to read negative reviews can be you know fun to write or if he didn't say it i'm sure someone else did uh, I don't think negative reviews are, are fun to write. There's a real just sick, sinking feeling in your stomach when you write a tough review, whether it be a, a neighborhood place, and sometimes we do that, or whether it be a super fancy, expensive place, because all these places employ hardworking people who believe in what they do. While Julia and Ryan's jobs look super different on the national and local levels, there's one very important commonality, anonymity. 
back in the timeout days, I had no pictures of myself online. No one knew what I looked like. I It was funny. There were so many instances where I'd be sitting next to or near Phil Vitale, who's like the mm-hmm. longtime critic for the Chicago Tribune. And I would see the way that he was being treated and dishes that were being brought out to him and just like laugh from my like table next to the bathroom, you know? It's important for critics to be anonymous because they want to represent the experience that the rest of us are having. They don't want to get preferential treatment. They don't want to get better food or service. So it's really important that they show up as one of us. I would say the way I approach anonymity is not giving restaurants a head start. You go to a restaurant, and if I have a reservation, I've probably made it under a phone number, hopefully a new phone number. Same thing goes with a pseudonym. I never make a reservation under my own name. That's uh, not just common sense, but it's part of my requirements here at my job. I have to uh, use a different name. Uh, When I use a different name, I try to make it a normal name, uh, a name that would probably look like someone like me. Uh, Once upon a time, uh, I used to use silly names just because I was at my old job and I got bored with things. And I I think one of my old worst pseudonyms was Brooklyn Steel, um, which was pretty funny. And it was especially funny when restaurants knew who I was and they asked me what my name was. And I remember this one guy, uh, I was at this Brooklyn restaurant and he said, what's your name? And he knew I was. I said, oh, my name is Brooklyn Steele. And he gives me this, this full of shit frown. But I knew he couldn't say anything. So I just I just kept kind of shoveling it out. and said, yeah, you know, Brooklyn Steele. And I come from this old, you know, Kings County family, you know, where, you know, blacksmiths, but not like blue collar blacksmiths, you know, kind of like high end blacksmiths, you know, doing it for cool stuff in Carroll Gardens. And he's just like nodding his head and like, man, this guy. But anyway, that was a long time ago. So most of the time right now when I use a pseudonym, I use a, a pretty basic one. But the key is not to give them a, a 10 minute head start. Uh, that's point A and point B is by going through these steps and jumping through these hoops, you're also letting your readers know that you take your job seriously, and when you're making a reservation, you're not calling in favors. In one scenario this year, our Hot 10 list is coming out uh, September 17th. This year, there was one restaurant I went to that I thought was amazing, but I they definitely knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to go back, but I was like, there's no way they're not going to recognize me. They were like on some sort of bizarre high alert. And so I sent my colleague Emil down there to check it out. And he, Emil Stonic, and he was just like obsessed with it as well. So everyone thinks that restaurant critics must be eating the best food all the time, but they're often eating food that they don't really want to eat and going really far out of their way to get to it. It's pretty grueling, not to complain. The way we do our list is we're only looking for restaurants that have opened within a year span. So I really pack all the travel into February, March, April, and this year, the first half of May. And in previous years, before I had a child, I would basically just leave the office and be like, all right, I'll be gone for the next 17 days. I'm going to, you know, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, going to pop in somewhere in Salt Lake City, and then I'll be back. After two years ago having a kid, like I kind of had to adjust that a little bit. So now I do more like three or four day trips during the week so I can be home on the weekend. But in both scenarios, I'm really trying to maximize my time in each city. Which means you're eating a lot, more than you'd ever want to. The sort of bare minimum that I would be doing on a given day is two lunches and two dinners. And sometimes it's more than that. The back to back tasting menu is rough. Oh my God. Do you ever do that? Yeah, I did it multiple times this year. Do not recommend. (laughs) You just can't even enjoy the first. It's hard to enjoy the first meal because you're like so anxious about how much you're going to have to eat at the second meal. Mm -hmm. And then it's hard to enjoy the second meal because you're full from the first meal. (laughs) And then it also has a big impact on your health. I've definitely pushed myself too far in the past three years ago. 
after one like two week trip, I ended up in the hospital with pneumonia because I was, you know, on a flight almost every day and then like touching down and eating meals and then getting on a plane the next day. And I just really wore myself out. I would like to be on this podcast saying that I've like really reformed and like changed the way I do things, but I haven't really. Uh, There's only a few of us who do what we do. And there's only a few people who have jobs that literally earning our paycheck results in our bodies looking a little bit differently. I remember when the New Yorker wrote a profile on Pete Wells' New York Times review, they said something to the effect of his job is what stands in between him and being thin, or something to that effect. Uh, One could make the same uh, argument about me. Uh, I used to have a pretty athletic body in high school. Uh, Athletics are still a huge part of my life. I love skiing and cycling and, and what have you. But uh, I'm not going to be a pure climber as a cyclist because I have a little bit of a gut. And that's simply the fact of the job impacting me. And I guess that's okay. So, Daniel, did you learn anything that you didn't know already about restaurant critics? Well, I spend a lot of time with Ryan. So, you know. People always think like, oh, if you have a critic for a friend, that's awesome. You're just going to always go to the best restaurants. But no. No, he is always, uh, I mean, he flies by the seat of his pants a little bit. He's always (laughs) asking people three minutes before he's leaving to go to a restaurant. Hey, do you want to go check out this? And Well, and Ryan specifically is not, you know, an A++ planner. But for some (laughs) critics that are, they like... Half of their time is spent trying to organize dinners oh and like, God. especially if you're na- doing the national thing. Yeah. Like I remember when we were working with Bill Addison and he would always be like scheduling dinners and right. figuring out when and where and who. And it's it's like an administrative nightmare. I think maybe that these critics spend a lot of their time and maybe even the majority of their time eating at restaurants that they never managed to write about because they're just like not really good or not really bad or mm-hmm. don't tell a story that they feel like adds to the conversation. I think the big takeaway that I want the audience to get is that this this isn't a job for everyone. No. Like, throughout my career, people <laughs> have always asked me if I would want to be a restaurant critic, and my answer has always been no. Yeah. Because I can't, I enjoy eating out so much, but part of that joy is that I get to do it in my own time with the people I want to do it with, and I'm not having to take notes in my head the whole time. So I, I don't want to pretend that it's um, a super, super grueling job. It's just not for everybody. Well, I think a thing, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how... Uh, food is a very prominent thing for people to talk about on dating apps. But a thing that you'll see a lot is like, what would your dream job be if money didn't matter? That's a prompt. And a lot of people will say a restaurant critic. Mm -hmm. And whenever I see that, I'm always like, I would love for you to be a restaurant critic for three days. Yeah, just try it. Just See what it does to your body. You'll answer. Your answer will change. Well, not even your body, but like it's not easy. And then it's like you're eating a dinner um, that is relevant to a review you're going to file in three weeks and your head has to be in the one you're currently writing and you have so much pressure to file on time and you need to schedule your photographers. You need to schedule all this. And if you're doing tasting menu restaurants, that's like four hours. How often do you really, does anyone really like, with infinite money, how often would you really want to go to a tasting menu? Maybe once a A quarter? quarter? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone just assumes that Ryan has infinite money Mm -hmm. to spend on restaurants. And uh, as you know, that's, you're in charge of that budget. Oh yeah. Does he have an infinite, does he he have not? He does not have an infinite budget. He has enough budget so that he can file three reviews a month. Okay. And a thing that I hear from him sometimes is like if he's doing uh, a thing about per se, mm-hmm. 
the next place he's going to do is not going to be on that level. Well, and that's what's nice about having a finite budget right. is he is acting like the rest of us, wherein if you have a very big fancy meal one weekend, you're going to have a cheap ass meal the next weekend. And so I like that he has this kind of restriction on his job. You like that he does not have infinite money from the <laughs> <Yes>. eater budget. <laughs> I hear about other budgets at other publications and it, it just blows my mind. Yeah, along those lines, people think that a critic goes in the restaurant and just says, like, one of everything, please, all the caviar supplements and everything. And Ryan is very careful about that. He's only going to do a supplement or he's only going to do a super expensive meat thing if he thinks it's the thing that's that everyone's ordering, if he thinks that it's an important part of telling that restaurant story. Right. He's not throwing gold flakes onto his dinners. Just yeah, and I think the- that applies to restaurant critics across the country, too. Yeah. Like, that's what they're trying to do, is they're trying to dine like every other person. I think a point that would be important to leave the good folks listening on is Big that- Big takeaway. Is that the most important thing about being a food critic is being a good journalist. Yeah. They, they are telling the story of either a city or a country through its food and they're not just hopping around from tasting menu to tasting menu just for the just for the just sake for the of kicks. it. No. We'll be right back with the biggest food stories of the week. Ding. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, Amanda, at this point in the show, we talk about our favorite food stories of the week. And we separate them with a little sound of a ding like this. Uh, nothing else to say. Let's just let's just start. Let's get into it. Start rambling. Yesterday, I wandered over to your desk uh-huh. as I am one to do. Yep. Um, which you love, and you told me to do it more. And uh, and I said, boy, we got to talk about this Popeyes chicken sandwich that they just released. This brand new. Spicy chicken crispy sandwich from Popeyes, mm-hmm. which resembles the Shake Shack chicken sandwich, the Chick Fil A, the massively beloved Chick Fil A sandwich. I was like, we got to talk about it because, in my opinion, this is the biggest single product, like new food item being rolled out uh-huh. at fast food restaurants that I have ever seen in my existence. Um, I have never seen such crazy fanfare and buzz over one thing dropping as I have. This spicy chicken sandwich from 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 Popeyes, and you were like, "Yeah, meh," you know. But well, no, I thought we should talk about it. I didn't agree that it was the biggest release the biggest. of all time. Okay, and then you texted me last night. I did. What'd you say? I said I think you're right. 
<laughs> so I had seen here and there, mm-hmm. I had seen... The Whispers po- of this chicken sandwich. Well, I had seen people in Slack talking about it. I had seen the posts and the, like, the coverage of like, oh, Chick-fil-A and Popeyes are getting into this Twitter war about the sandwich and that it's selling out in some places. Mm-hmm. But I had been busy on Monday and Tuesday of this week. Okay. I was in meetings yeah. all day. I don't so mean okay I to not say you were busy. I know you were no, busy. No, no, no. I yeah. just hadn't really gotten deep into this story. Right. I had I had superficially read, like, okay, here's something happening on Twitter with fast food. It happens all the time, whatever. Yeah. And then you're like, this is the biggest shit that's ever happened. And I'm like, okay, Daniel, calm down. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. And you're like, I've got to go to meetings to determine this, the future of this brand. Yes. And I'm like, the chicken sandwich is so important. That's exactly my frame of mind. But then last night, I opened up Twitter mm. and really was really getting in there yeah. and reading about what's going on. And it's crazy. It's crazy. It's is it the actually, biggest one you've ever seen? Yeah, I've. I yes. mean, there are. I sometimes things happen here in New York where like, oh, something sold out, or like, there's a guy in D.C. selling the sandwich for hundred dollars. Like, okay, something weird is Wait, happening. Pause. There is a guy in D.C. Yes. selling this sandwich for hundred dollars. That's true. Uh, but then seeing just Twitter responses around the country of this thing being sold out in Seattle and Atlanta yeah. and all these pictures of these drive-thrus across the country being backed up and people talking about how these people that work at Popeyes are just freaking out because they're not ready for this. They weren't. They didn't think this was going to happen. Um, one of our reporters, Vince, uh, was at a Popeyes in Brooklyn yesterday and he said all of the reg- the Popeyes regulars were just really mad because they're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yes. Why are all these new people at Popeyes? Why are there all these people at Popeyes? And the yeah. people, yeah, they're just not staffed for this kind of yeah. onslaught and they're selling out everywhere. Well, let me just backtrack a, a second. When I said it's the biggest release ever, I don't actually think there have been that many prominent fast food releases, right? So, like, about a year ago, McDonald's re-released the Szechuan sauce because of the whole Rick and Morty uh, phenomenon. That was very well covered. Mm -hmm. Shake Shack released chicken nuggets about eight months ago, nine months ago. That felt like a big deal for us, Uh but I don't think anyone really cared on a national level. What about those Taco Bell tacos with the Doritos in them? What are they called? The Doritos Locos? Yeah. That was a big deal. I think that had that staying was a really power big deal. too. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think those were selling out, right? I just don't. It just doesn't feel to me. No, it's not at this level. No, this is like this is chaos. Yeah, this is chaos. I think a couple factors have led to this. I haven't had the sandwich. Everyone, a lot of people at the office have. They said it's very good. Mm-hmm. I think the most important part of this is the the at least the the drive online was. Because people are so excited to pin this sandwich against Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Everyone loves the Chick-fil-A sandwich, but a lot of people who are aware of Chick-fil-A's politics and that they support uh, groups and super PACs that are openly Mm -hmm. anti-LGBTQ, yet they love the chicken sandwich. So for a chicken sandwich to come along that was just as good or maybe better Mm -hmm. is just like is a godsend. You know, of Not course, God is, uh, I don't know, right. send from somewhere. I don't lowercase know. G. Lowercase G. <laughs> Ascend from the culinary development companies or whatever. You know, we've already gotten a pitch from somebody who's like, um, who wants to do the buzzkill story about how everyone's so excited about this mass processed poultry item yeah. and how terrible that is and how ethically we shouldn't eat any chicken sandwiches. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so wait for that. Are you going to do it? I don't think so. I, I mean, I agree, but also I'm not in the mood to be a buzzkill right now. Yeah. No, it's we, too fun. I do it enough. 
you know? <laughs> That's the meeting you were having. <laughs> My life is already filled with enough buzz killing. Buzz um, Are you excited by this? Does this kind of thing get you excited? I have a Popeyes by my house. I might go try it. Well, you better but I might allot wait. some time. I might wait. I might wait till the buzz dies down. Yeah. Um, Are you going to try it today? You going to go? Well, I have a podiatry appointment later that's next to a Popeyes. <sighs> okay. Popeyes and podiatry. Fun. It sounds like a bad band. Ding, ding. I saw a tweet this weekend that said something like, if you can hang out with a person in the grocery store, they're a good person to date. Or like if you Why? enjoy being with someone in a grocery store, they're a good person to date. Huh. How come? Well, that the tweet didn't get that far. Oh. But <laughs> I just want to tell you that I love hanging out with people. In grocery stores? In grocery stores. Not in a romantic way. Mm-hmm. Not not in a romantic way. Mm-hmm. But in and all, always. I love always, walking with someone through a grocery store and just seeing how they interact with the various products and what level of knowledge they have in like the butter category. Uh-huh. And like if I show them like that from for at Whole Foods and it's like, here's an $11 tub of goat butter from Pakistan or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you of grass fed goat? But like, how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. And like, I just think that it, it grocery stores, because we all need to be there are just such an interesting way of looking at someone's view of the world. And I find that like, People who don't like board games are the same people who don't like to do that with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say two things about this. You one, hate the grocery store. No, I'm no, sure. no. One is we went. You uh, came to a Trader Joe's with me once, oh, yeah. and it made me very uncomfortable. And like ah! two, I felt too observed because it was very much like you were watching how I was interacting with the grocery store. So, <laughs> but maybe so. You're, what you're saying is I'm not lying. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling, I totally believe this yeah. is what you feel. You felt uncomfortable? Yeah. Well, we like smiled and hugged after. No, no, no. Like, I didn't feel uncomfortable, but it's really just fun. like, oh, Daniel's very much watching mm-hmm. what I'm buying and why. And You didn't even want to walk around the other aisles with me. You just knew what you were going for and uh, wanted I to had, get this. I had a very small amount of time. But if it was an activity that we knew was, was going to happen, like this was very impromptu, and we were both grocery shopping, I could see that as being fun. Mm-hmm. Unless, like, Daniel is trying to see what I'm buying and I'm I'm very concerned. (laughs) What about just, like, if we were walking around Union Square going to the Whole Foods? I know I keep talking about the Whole Foods Union Square. (laughs) I'm down for other grocery stores Sure, sure, sure. No, no, I'm just saying just to walk around. Right, just to walk around. Yeah. And not buy anything? Well, you know, maybe pick up some snacks. Maybe, I don't know. Who knows what you're going to need when you go in there? I think because my life is so different from yours, (laughs) it's hard for me to imagine a leisurely grocery store situation. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like if I were a woman of leisure without a family that I had to shop for and I could just like do that, I think that would be a fun date or even afternoon activity with a friend. Yeah, uh, I've done it kind of on a date and one time and I like it the best when the other person needs things but doesn't have any time constraints. Right. That's, <laughs> that's my optimal because I'm like, I'm not going to butt in. And then, you know, she's picking out like the pre-graded parm and I'm like, you're getting the pre-graded? I'm just. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering, you know, I'm like, you save money getting the regular stuff and it's better. Wow. So it really doesn't get better shopping with you. <laughs> I think my second thing I would say about this is it reminds me. Remember when there was that app that the refrigerator company mm-hmm. put out LG where the one, it was matching you instead of photos of yourself the person you're going to be set up with it's of their fridge yeah. and you can decide if you're going to swipe left or right based on what's in their fridge it's the yeah. same thing yeah but I my fridge is a disaster it's it's a barren wasteland 
my fridge is filled with the one or two snacks that I've bought in the hundred trips to the grocery store. Like, right, right. Whereas your grocery shopping I know self can be a little more impressive. Is more impressive. Yeah. yeah. I want to be represented by product choices that I make. But then what happens when your date comes over to your house and sees your fridge? She'll have seen me in the grocery <laughs> she, store already. She'll have already She's, she'll learned know that, you're that I have the capacity to fill a fridge. Okay, better okay. than anyone mm-hmm. on the planet. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's like she saw me uh, working the pit at a NASCAR race and like completely turning a car around in sixty seconds, changing the tires, fixing some engine things, and then comes home and I don't have a car in the garage. This She's is, not going to worry. This is you that at I the don't. grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> NASCAR pit level F one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's not going to worry that I don't have a car in the garage because she's she knows what I can do. Right. Criticizing her <laughs> pre-graded parm picks. <laughs> this week, Defara, one of New York's most famous pizza places, right. was shut down by the tax department because right. they owed over $150,000 in taxes. Oof. Uh, sad. Everyone was very <laughs> upset. Yeah. There was one funny tweet I saw where someone was just like, pizza places shouldn't have to pay tax. Just, like, let them be. Uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio tweeted, Defara is the best pizza place in New York City. It must be saved. I'm ready to do anything I can to get them reopened, as are thousands of New York City pizza lovers. My team and I are looking into how we can help resolve the situation. So I appreciate this, but I also think it's pretty unfair. Yeah, it's a really slippery slope. Yeah, like, when does it stop? Like, I love Defara too, but, you well, know, don't laws mean anything? I just feel like there are probably 15 or 20 places in New York alone in that are as iconic yeah. as Defara's. And now they don't have to pay taxes either? De Blasio, watch out. These are my tax dollars. Yeah. You know, we pay high taxes here. Yeah. I love my pizza, but it they got to they gotta like pay their taxes. He shouldn't be declaring the best pizza in New York Oh, really? He should weigh in on that? <laughs> yeah, I don't need him to weigh in on that. Yeah. Not yeah, our like what, what pizza place do you think saw that and was like, de Blasio? <laughs> As if he wasn't hated already. I know. know? Um, Not doing himself any favors here. I just think like if if he's gonna if he's gonna save them, like he's gotta save Cat's Deli. You know, like he's gotta yeah. save Russ and Daughters. He's, there's a, a lot of places that are on the same the same level. Yeah, it's, you could start just waiving the taxes for all kinds of iconic restaurants and other New York City institutions, and then where are we? Here's my question. Yeah. If he does start doing that, like... Should we come up with a list for him? No, but... Wh- I mean, sure. But what... <laughs> yeah, I mean, do we want to do... I, that would actually be a really fun... Instead of calling our iconic dishes map from Eater New York, we should just call it places de Blasio should save if they go out of business. Yeah. But here's another question. Like, if he's going to get involved in Save Defara, like if Defara sells... Mm-hmm. And there's new ownership, and the piece is just not as good. Is he going to send consultants in to help them like improve their product? I don't think he's <laughs> he's going to buy them. <laughs> no, but I just place. mean like Defara is not producing at the level they once were, and this is a <laughs> and now and they're, we're a, taxing a, them again. A tragedy. Yeah, you can only pay no taxes if your product is excellent. Yeah, as judged by the mayor himself. The mayor. Well, that's why I think he shouldn't be weighing in at all. Maybe he could hire an advisory team and that could be our new job. That's our exit strategy out of Eater. Oh, to to save restaurants or we identify become, them as city treasures. We identify when they're good enough to have their taxes waived. Yeah. And then when they slip, we're like, "Hey, De Blasio, charge. Yeah. Charge them taxes again." That would be a really <laughs> They just start getting bills and they're yeah. like, 
damn it, we increased the salt. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what do we want us to do? Yeah, I mean, the mayor also shouldn't be saying things like, imagine if he was just like, um, Stuyvesant Street is my favorite street in the city. Be like, that's a, don't. What does that say about the rest of the streets? <laughs> yeah, what about the other streets? You're hurting their feelings. Daniel, Janine, there was a funny story this week that I would like to talk about involving Jeff Bezos and the way he eats Cheetos. Okay. Okay, so he put a, a picture up on Instagram that the cap, the caption said, I know, dot, 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 but God, I love Cheetos. And it's a picture of his hand in the, he's in the car looking out at this like expanse. He must be on vacation or something. He's in the desert. And his fingers are just covered with Cheetos dust. So every finger just caked with this orange powder. Right. Um, seems fine. But then I was reading this article by Mel Magazine where they point out something that I didn't realize at first, that it's weird that all of his fingers are coated in the Cheeto dust. Yeah, it's very weird. And that most people would just eat Cheetos with a couple of fingers. Well, two specific fingers. Two specific fingers. The pointer and the thumb are the only yeah. fingers you need to eat Cheetos. You could maybe get your middle finger in there. If you're doing like the three-pronged I thing. guess, but yeah. really like you're, just the, get, you're just getting your like thumb. Like the claw from the yeah. from stuffy machines. Or, yeah. Yeah. But pretty much just your index and your thumb. That's all you need. And he's got all of them. Like, how would a crab eat Cheetos without, anyway. Okay. Well. So, I think the question is, the question is, does he just shove his whole hand in there mm-hmm. and just like eat them like a monster? Or, just, or, is this just performative and he put a little bit of water on his fingertips and covered them in Cheeto dust so he could be a man of the people? Yeah. Is it completely staged and he's never had Cheetos before and doesn't know how it goes and it's just like, uh. I mean, listen, Jeff Bezos has done a lot of things that a lot of people around here aren't too happy about. Like what? But one of them, (laughs) but getting jacked and being uh, very into anti-aging is not one that I will personally ding him for. You know? Okay. Uh All that is to say that he, I didn't, he didn't strike me as a Cheetos eater. You think it's staged? I think this is the only time he's eaten Cheetos in the last 10 years, unless unless he just has, because actually, take that back, because The Rock, I would say, health icon, uh-huh, um, does uh-huh. everything right, yep. rips the gym harder than anyone I've ever seen, yep. uh, and you brags about it you a little bit. You love him? I don't know if I love him, but I just, the fact that he brings himself to a level every time he works out where he actually has to grunt, I think is impressive, and frankly, is a, is a level I would like to achieve at some point in my uh-huh, life, uh-huh. both in confidence and in effort. Okay. All that is to say that 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 the fitness icon of our generation is a fan of cheat meals, and um, Jeff Bezos has his access to training is as good as The Rock's, mm-hmm. and so he's probably on a cheat meal based diet, which is a once a week just go at it. And so maybe he is a cheat meal guy. And uh, maybe point, when he does his cheat meal, he just really attacks it. He rocks Cheetos. It's all whole hand in the bag. Yeah. Just really grab him hard. Right. I think that like performative junk food eating from like trillionaires is is funny. But really, like, if I was a trillionaire, I would do it a lot. Really? Like I would want if there were paparazzi <laughs> I photos think it's of me. A little embarrassing. What? Why? Because you're trying so hard to show that you're an everyman. Like, come on. Even if it's not staged, which it could be staged, that's still one of the big options. What would you like to see from his Instagram? Like a picture of like a hundred people at a factory and he goes like, lol, just about to fire them. <laughs> I mean, what would you want him to do? Just like his fancy rich person life. 
Oh, okay. Um, I uh, am friends with someone around the office who eats chips with chopsticks. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I've started lot. doing it, and it's great. Yeah, you don't get your hands dirty at all. But I feel like that's a ridiculous thing. Like, if I was a trillionaire, I would put that on Instagram, and then you'd be on a podcast I don't know if anyone should be me. Instagramming that either. And then you'd be talking about how I'm fitness goals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how do you feel about famous rich people putting up Instagrams of them eating at fast food restaurants and just like restaurants of the people. Does that annoy you as a general category? I think it's somehow less performative than the picture of the Cheeto dust on his hands. <laughs> I think if it was just like a picture of an In-N-Out burger, you'd be like, oh, cool. He loves In-N-Out just like me. Mm-hmm. The Cheetos thing is just like, you're weird. It's <laughs> <laughs> weird. That's it. For That's it. this week's episode of Eater's Digest, tune in next week where we tackle even more stories. We talked criticism. We talked spicy chicken sandwich. Yeah. Big week. Yeah. You learned a few things about me. Always. <laughs> I always do. Uh, uh, if you like the show, again, tell one friend. If you have anything you'd like us to know about you, email us at digestateater.com. We want to hear your weird restaurant stories or any tips or things you want to hear about from us. That would be great. We love emails. We love emails. We read them all and respond to, I think, all of them. Yeah. We're so far at all of them. So far. One of us. Sometimes both of us. <laughs> Get ready. Sometimes we have, like, a discourse, you know? Sometimes there's a long conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much to Julia Kramer for coming on this week's show. Thank you to Ryan Sutton. Thank you to all the Eater editors who helped us put this together. Thank you to our producer, Martha Daniel. Thanks to you for co-hosting. Thanks to you for co-hosting. And we're done. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, Martha, can you send me... Sorry, I got...